Shartoff, your host of Film Wax Radio. It's Friday, February 12th, 2021. This is episode 655 of the podcast. I've been putting a lot of content on the YouTube channel recently because, you know, we're in this interesting period right now in the film industry where just people are trying to figure out their way. And so I've, you know, I have access to a lot of people with thoughts about that. So I've been trying to invite many on, as well as new films that are coming out and the typical guests in that regard. I don't mean typical in their luminariness, but typical in the sense that I typically, over the years, have had just, you know, we bring on filmmakers and actors and cinematographers who have a new film to talk about but and plug something. But this is not just what I'm doing. I'm trying to do something bigger. So if you could, if you're listening, uh, if you haven't done so as of yet, you might check the YouTube channel and follow, subscribe, and, and then just engage on there and, and try to watch some of that stuff. And then I t- you decide which one of those conversations are typically going to get onto the podcast. I, I mean, ideally, I would put it all, but I can't do that. So these are just sort of, to some degree, somewhat arbitrary. But on the other hand, I think about what works and what makes the most sense for the podcast. And that's how I arrive at that. But it's it's interesting how reverse engineering has taken place here where I used to just do the podcast and then I would take the audio file and put it on the YouTube channel just as another way for people to li- find the show and to listen to it because people actually do use to YouTube for listening to things. But in now, I realized since the last year, I can do everything over, uh, obviously over Zoom, just like a lot of podcasters. And, and now we have the YouTube channel and I figured, well, why not? do more stuff there and people find these conversations all the better. If it's not something that interests listeners or viewers, then so be it. But I've been finding it tremendously therapeutic and, and great company. So again, go to youtube.com slash filmwaxradio if you're interested in listening to more conversations. I suppose some of this stuff could end up in a like a sort of a Patreon bonus thing, but you know, so it may evolve again when people are out and about more, but more people find themselves at home much more frequently maybe this works right now as is so just a little bit more news here uh iliana is coming back on she is uh at the moment a co-host uh, or i should say an occasional co-host on the podcast so we have another conversation come up there's a brand new book which is uh by the author mark harris who a few years ago wrote a book called pictures at a revolution five movies and the birth of of the new Hollywood, which I read some time ago. Anyway, Mark has a new book on um, the uh, seminal director, Mike Nichols, and uh, it's called, I think, Mike Nichols' Life, but it's a quite readable. We're, we're both reading it right now, and we were chatting today about it. And so we're going to have Mark on. It's already arranged, and uh, I'm looking forward to that, to talk about Mike Nichols and, and Elaine May and you know, all these other great people, all those great movies that we love. And and I look forward to working with Ileana 
she's writing a book. I can't talk about it, but I just tell you, she's writing and working on a new book, and we're we're uh, I, we have long conversations about it. It's pretty pretty fun. She's quite the film historian herself. Anyway, look forward to that and maybe more. We are talking about uh, uh, per. Uh, very, very likely doing a something together on a regular basis, which could be uh, very different than what I do here on Film Wax Radio, but also a nice companion. So more about that, I suppose, in the spring. This is uh, Friday, February 12th. Uh, we are on the cusp of another wintry weekend here in the Hudson Valley. And this is, I guess, Valentine's weekend. Happy birthday to those lovebirds who choose to celebrate Valentine's Day and who aren't like those other grumpy, maybe more uh, cynical types like myself who look at, <laughs> at this as being more of a hallmark holiday. But, you know, I, I, I don't. If I, if I had somebody who was very, I was very close to uh, in that way right now, I probably would be celebrating just like you guys. And I'm not without my romantic distractions, shall we say. But, but anyway... I'm not making breaking any news here to those who are listening. Let's get on to this episode of How's That for a Transition. This is a great episode. Aren't they all? We have on here two two filmmakers. One is a guy, Aza Jacobs, or Azazel Jacobs, who has uh, been a filmmaker of note for some time. He's He has made a number of films. His new one's French Exit, which is what we're going to talk about. But I do want to mention he's another yet another camp friend of mine gone uh, Hollywood, as it were. No, he's had great success, and it's, I'm so happy that he has. Okay, so I really reconnected with Aza with his film Terry, and I know I talked to him about it, and I guess I thought he we podcasted, but we didn't. It must have been a written piece or something back then, because it's 10 years ago. And then after I saw Terry, I went and I looked back, because I hadn't seen his earlier film. He's, he made a couple of, of features before that, one of which was called Mama's Man in 2008. And I, I loved that one. It was a very beautiful film, very emotional. And since then, he made uh, The Lovers uh, a few years ago and a HBO series, which went, I think, two seasons, called Doll and M. I know he came on for that. We, we talked in uh, 2017 or 18 about Dahl and M. I think it was 2017. And now he's finally back on with a French Exit. So I was a counselor. I'm older than, I'm older than everybody, but I'm older than Aza. And he was a camper. I remember very specifically what he looked like. I can remember his personality. I just remember Aza very, very specifically. I don't know why there were lots of campers, but I do remember him. I never knew, who knew that he was going to come back as this successful indie filmmaker and now he is working in uh, with such great actors and actresses in this type of project the film is called french exit it's in select theaters today and then it will be opening wider in april uh thanks to sony pictures classics my plan was to die before the money ran out says 60 year old penniless manhattan socialite francis price played by the beautiful talented Michelle Pfeiffer. But things didn't go as planned. Her husband, Franklin, has been dead for 12 years, and uh, with his vast inheritance gone, she cashes in the last of her possessions and resolves to live out her twilight days anonymously in a borrowed apartment in Paris, accompanied by her directionless son, Malcolm, played by Lucas Hedges, and a cat named Small Frank, who may or may not embody the spirit of Frances' dead husband, who is, by the way, 
voiced, yes, the cat is voiced, by the great Tracy Letts, who worked with Oz in his last film, The Lovers, with Deborah Winger and, and, and Tracy Letts. Anyway, also in this film is Valerie Mahaffey, Imogene Poots, Susan Coyne, Film Wax Radio alum, if I might, or alumni, Danielle McDonald, Isaac de Bancolet, and uh, Daniel de Tommaso are also in the film. It opens again today in select theaters. Let's talk to old camp friend and friend from these uh, interviews now, which is the only time I get to see Aza. This is Aza, Azazel Jacobs, here only on Film Wax Radio. It's all gone. Every penny. What was your plan? My plan was to die before the money ran out, but I kept and keep not dying, and here I am. The hens are clucking. Are they saying I'm broke? They are. What about my apartment in Paris? It's just sitting empty. Have you told your mother about our engagement? We're going to Paris. Would you describe yourself as a coward? No. When I came to Paris the first time, something sent up an alert. It was the presentiment of what was to come. We're going to lie down. Will you come visit us later? What's she paying you? Ping. Aren't you her gigolo? Oh, God, no. That's my mother. What is it? An invitation to a party. Come in. Where are the others? It's just us. I thought we might become friends. I've no need of friends in my life at the moment. You're being a dick. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hi. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. How have you, how you been during this crazy time? That's, a, that's an impossible question. I mean, you know, I think uh, just yeah. trying to roll with it as best as I possibly can. Mm, sure. Well, you know, in a way, the New York Film Festival, which is where I saw French Exit, mm. I had just moved into this new environment up here because I, I decided I was not going to go through any more of the quarantining the pandemic in the city. So I moved a little north of the city. And um, it was kind of a comforting thing to be able to, you know, to sort of enjoy the New York Film Festival in my living room. And um, I really got, you know, a kick out of seeing French Exit in, under those circumstances. I had, you know, acquired kind of a bigger set to knowing that this was the way I probably was going to watch films for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, for me, that was, it was a great experience to have the New York Film Festival to work towards, you know, we finished the film really close to the premiere, like probably a few days beforehand was everything was ready. Um, yeah. And to have New York City, because I've been, I kind of got stuck in Los Angeles uh, during the cutting and, um, and sure. the plan on post-production would be in Ireland and I just wound up doing everything the way that remotely the way everybody's been working and so to come back to New York which is bit which felt so so painful to be so far away during such a painful period of uh, of of, the, of this world but especially this city at that time meant a lot to come back and try to you know bring something that I'm proud of and that I want to contribute culturally to to this world um, you know, the only other postscript I'll add is, I, you know, I, I largely kind of put aside music for a long time. You and I had that connection to our summer camp yeah. from the 80s. And, uh, and 
I will only say that the that the, well, some of those folks have pulled together since this uh, in the last year, and it's been another sort of source of social comfort. You know that that community we shared and the, to see people um, and to reconnect and to meet new people has been really just uh, you know it's uh, made this time a lot more uh, palatable or where you could see po- the real positive things coming out of it. Yeah, and I would say for me working on this film throughout this period has given me like <laughs> that was the world I wanted to go to. I shot this when this pandemic was just not even a possibility in my mind. There's nothing. And um, right. it was the end of December, basically like before Christmas. And so to have this moment in time where people are sitting out inside a cafe, just being able to return to that every day, um, it really taught me the value of not only this this particular film, but filmmaking for me. Um, it was such a comforting place. It was such a nice place to escape to and also bring in, not just escape from whatever emotion I was going through, but I go to translate it into the work and the way I was approaching the work. Um, well, I'm, I, I hope people really uh, go out of their way to see it. It's, it's, it's a, uh, a great film for the moment. Um, you know, and interestingly, I mean, large parts of it takes place inside this Paris apartment. So, <laughs> and there's a lot of people at certain points sharing that space, which is part of the comedy of it is sharing physical space. It, uh, funny enough, you know, just tell people what a French exit is. I wasn't familiar with this expression. Yeah, I, I wasn't either until I read the book and uh, and understood it then. But basically, this idea of uh, leaving without saying goodbye. Yeah. Um, and at the basis of what this film really is about, and I I like movies, especially that have the whole kind of narrative within its title. Like, I, you know, I, I think Dead Man is a perfect film and part of that perfection is its title. Like, okay, this is about a dying man um, throughout. And that's really this something similar how I approach French Exit. Like, at the base of this, the narrative is in these two words, which is the idea of, um, of disappear and how we, how we all and how each of us wind up disappearing. Mm-hmm. I like the... Um... Yeah, I, li- I like the title a lot, and I thought it meant something physical. Like, I thought it, there was, like, a, maybe there's a ex- way to exit. Well, I guess it is, I mean, uh, what you're saying. But I didn't realize this idea of leaving, that sounds like something I do. I used to, like, hang up the phone without saying, and then my rationale was, I don't like saying goodbye. I don't, you know, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. But the, Every culture lays claim to this too. There's an Irish goodbye, and there's all these different. Now I found out that like really, everybody has their own way of not saying goodbye and getting off. Um, but I think that uh, it's it takes a certain ability to decide. Like you have to have really timing. You have to timing. You know, to slip out without people know know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, assuming there's a, lot, a number of people and you can do that. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, you have to be at that place where you, where you 
move past the you know that fear of missing out right because it's like now's my time to go and i'm ready to leave this thing and it doesn't matter what happens after this and i, I think that takes a, a personality and definitely with francis that i found quite envious and something that i didn't really see myself but something that i wanted to have as part of myself this is michelle my first character francis oh. Who is, is it, she recently widowed? I don't I mean, or maybe she's not so recently widowed so much as just like the, and since it's in the first few minutes, I can divulge, right? That the, the money's run out. She's broke. Yeah, but the, the opening of the film is actually of Francis picking up young Malcolm. So about 12 years earlier after, um, after her husband had recently. Okay. Um, when we get into the film, we're looking at present day Malcolm. Again, is it too much to say that the the father husband who has disappeared, who who has died, who has made his French exit possibly, but he, they put him, they've sort of decided that he is the cat now, that he, right, that he, he, I mean, it's, uh, that that his soul has moved into the cat, I guess. Yeah, and I think it's something, you know, all of us that, has an animal finds our soul in that you know finds a soul in that animal when we when we fall for them and we love them and uh in this case or even if we don't love them but we find the soul that each animal carries when we get to know them and in this particular case i think that francis and uh and maybe Malcolm's just gone along with it, but with this idea that, yeah, like their, her dead husband has potentially been inhabiting this cat that they wound up acquiring right after Franklin Price passed away. So, and the premise is that, that Francis and Malcolm moved to Paris where Francis will make her, her own exit. She's not, she's decided that she's, um, you know, especially because her means, her, her means have come to an end, essentially, I guess is the way you put it. Well, the end of the line is ahead. It's clear, you know, that it's a uh, finite number. And so how she's going to handle that and what that means to her and really who is she without money, I think is a, is, is a huge part of this story. And I think especially the, the idea that class and money are, are two separate things. Um, I think that that's one of the things that really drew me to wanting to tell this story was seeing the separation because I think some of the people that have the most class, in particular in this film, have the least amount of money. Mm-hmm. What is your relationship with Tracy Letts? How did that develop? Because obviously he he was in your previous film, The Lovers. And he lends his voice to the cat. Yeah. Here, right? To to was it Tracy, since the moment that I met Tracy, which was in preparation for the lovers, so you know, we had this phone call for the lovers after he read the script. And uh it was a great conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he's like, Okay, let's do this, which is not something you usually hear from an actor when you're just having a conversation with the first conversation with them there's a lot of like dancing around and seeing what you're going to be about this and there's like a lot of pushing but he was just he put it right out there he's like let's do this if you want to do this i want to do this 
And that was uh, that that was the beginning of Tracy having a huge impact on me. And he's somebody who just has a lot of traits that I not only do I want in my life, but I try to ask uh, in my own mind, like, how would Tracy handle this? Or how would this sound? Really? For whatever reason, Uh when I was reading French Exit, um, and once Michelle came on, like, I was thinking of just, okay, a husband and wife, how does, how does this, who could be this person? And Tracy's voice just immediately came to me. It's a, it's such a particular, I mean, it's why he's, one of the reasons why he's, he's the incredible actor he is, is this, this, um, such a, such a powerful, unique voice. And so it was easy, it was an easy jump and it was an easy call to make to him to, as I started building out this, this ensemble and figuring out who this family was, this family of misfits. And, you know, I, I had a note to myself to ask you about collaborating with, um, as, like, uh, let me take a baby step back. Did you write Mama's Man? Yeah, I did you write. And then you do typically, now it seems like you either work with existing material or you're collaborating from someone else, right? I mean, you're... you're Mama's I wrote. Uh, was just an original screenplay as well. Which one? The, the Lovers. Lovers. So I go back and forth. I really like, I, um, and, it, and it's interesting what grabs me. Patrick DeWitt is a, right. is, He's, is a friend, a close friend. So I wound up reading his books at very kind of earlier stages than most. And so like, I couldn't, I, 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 it gives me this opportunity to respond pretty early and go like, hey, this is the film I'd like to make. So that happened with Terry, where he sent me something, I responded, hey, I want to make this into a film. Ultimately, he decided that that wasn't a book and it was a movie. I see. Same thing with Sisters Brothers. I read the book, I loved it. And I was like, but this is not my story to tell. And I did think, oh, but I think this is John C. Riley's and was able to send it over to John. And then same thing with Under Major, the next book, like I loved the book, but I knew it wasn't my story to tell. Something happened with French Exit when I read it. I didn't, the moment I finished the last page, I called him up and asked him, you know, could we, could we try to make this and bring this to screen together? Yeah. Uh, it, do you find, um, and then you have these, this relationship also with Tracy Letts, who's, you know, of course, right. Did he also have a hand in writing The Lovers? Oh no 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 okay. no, uh, no no I wrote I wrote this the screenplay on my own and it, it was a big reason why he signed on he responded and same thing with Deborah like the nice thing about both these last scripts in particular was that the actors that it attracted did not want to change a word of them and that was something very new for me as a filmmaker that's usually looking for like, okay, is there another way we want to do this? And that, that, that sometimes that's totally fine if that happens. But I wound up feeling like, oh, the lovers is this is a this is this is a delicate balance, and I don't want to make that call on the day of shooting that something is better. And the same thing with the uh, French exit script. I was like, these words are really really particular, 
and just going like, oh, well, can we change this the to a of or whatever it is? Or right, sure, sure. I think it would be a major implication all the way across the film. So um, sticking really verbatim to the script was something not only that I was excited by, but luckily these actors wanted to do the, the, the writing and especially with Patrick's script. I mean, uh, it was, it, it really, the actors that I wound up with, it really connected with them. And you have a great, in this film, it's such a great collection of actors uh, from Isaac de Banquille to Danielle McDowell, Mitchell Poots, mentions Michelle Pfeiffer, I understand she's in the film. <laughs> Lucas Hedges uh, plays Malcolm. Um, and, and uh, you know, I mean, just... Yeah. What, a, what an ensemble. Using coin and really all, even all those small roles that are going on, I, I mean, a lot of thought and care went into every role so that these were people that all contributed to this type of world that we're creating and created. And I look at even the smallest, uh, the housekeeper, Sylvia, at, at yep. friend, and I, I marvel at what people, how they're able yeah. to bring life, whether they're on screen or not, to these characters. So, uh, you can see, a, like, you're, you're, as a filmmaker, a storyteller, you're, you're, you're seem like you're just kind of getting started because you're just figuring out new ways to collaborate with actors and your, you know, creative uh, partners, you know. Yeah. I mean, when I see my films, they really still feel very, very similar to my first films 20 years ago. It all feels very personal. It all feels handmade. It all feels like um, completely at the end of the day, I'm answering to myself and I've been able to, you know, this film, no matter the scale and the size, which is much bigger than uh, other films I've done, I wound up having final cut and I wound up uh, which is not just wow. to you um, and uh, I wound up pushing to get really I mean the film I wanted to make with the people that I wanted to make it with well good for you yeah and that and that was the same battle 20 years ago when I was um, you know making good times kid for ten thousand dollars or whatever it was with just myself and my wife and I still haven't, I have not been able to see that film. I have not, I guess. Um, that will, you know, just put out a new version out of it. And I think oh, really? iTunes with Mama's Men and also a new, like really nice new scan of both of those. I oh, think nice. On iTunes in the next couple of weeks. Oh, really? So just the, and it's just for streaming, you're saying? Say again? Oh, just, a, just, they just put it out just for streaming only. On, on iTunes, as oh, opposed yeah. to you know some sort of physical product, I guess. Oh yeah, that's no, that's out. The Blu-rays came out like a, okay. Oh, I'll check it out. Like the, the iTunes, the whatever versions of it come out next. Let's remind everybody: the French exit, Azazel's new film is is opening in in theaters. So there are still some cities that are, are actually operating with theaters yeah. on February twelfth. And um, and I guess we'll have a bite. I, I don't know if that means, I guess I'll, I'll find out ahead of time if there's going to be, a, a, a people will also be able to watch it, uh, stream it, other, another, you know. I don't know what the, you know, I'm just, like I said. like I'll I'm, take care of that. You just sit there and look pretty. Yeah. And uh, 
I wish we had more time. I don't uh, typically operate well with a very, very small amount of time, but I thought I couldn't let this pass. And no. I, I really did. And I really, really got a kick out of watching um, the film. So I wanted to, to let you know that, if nothing else. I really appreciate that. And obviously, um, I can't throw. I mean, just the, the fact that me and Darius, Smart are both like. Uh, Get out of here. Oh, tell them. I finally got my blonde guild. Anyway, I'll tell them. Because our kids were, were going to school together a few years ago. And it was one that we brought up. We back again with uh, Darius since we were bunk mates there. And now we both are, you know, uh, we were talking again pretty much every day as we're going through putting our films out. It's such a nice. I, I noted that. Um, uh, well, give them my best and take care of yourself. Stay safe and healthy. All right. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Have you heard any rumors regarding my reputation? I heard that you were odd. Well, I'm more than odd. There's a goodly part of me that wants to set this building on fire. What do you think of that? I've never been so hurt as when I saw your face for the first time. Why? Because you were me. I've always been lucky. I've been unlucky, but I have a sense that this will change suddenly and permanently. I've only been lucky, and I believe I will always be. It's such a cliche, isn't it? Someone killing themselves after the glamour has passed. Do you know what a cliche is? It's a story so fine that it's grown old in its hopeful retelling. You talk the talk, don't you? Oui, petit cochon. They broke the mold with that one. Cochon means pig. And now in a very big shift in, in subject matter. First time on the show, Bayan Junam, who is a documentary filmmaker. This is a three-part documentary series that he co-created with Marley Clements. I, I chose it because I didn't know, I did not know uh, uh, Bayan personally. I'm glad he's done the show. We had a fantastic time, as you'll hear in a moment. And I would look forward to him coming on as many times as he wants to going forward. The name of the docuseries is called QAnon, The Search for Q, which is a comprehensive look at the who, what, and why. In fact, the, the who, what, and why are broken into three episodes of the viral movement of QAnon, which is as topical as you can get, which is why I chose it. I was very interested. There's been some big New York Times articles uh, worth reading as well. But go to Vice TV and uh, watch this series. I think the first episode is available also on YouTube. Here he is right now, documentary filmmaker Bayan Junam here on Filmwax Radio. QAnon. Satanic rituals? Drinking children's blood? Adrenochrome? Where did they come from? QAnon is the single greatest information operation in the history of humanity. How responsible are they for the attack on the Capitol? Should Q be classified as a domestic terrorism threat? And where are they headed next? They will excuse and encourage any amount of violence against their political enemies. Hi, Adam. Hi, Bayan. It's Bayan, right? Bayan, that's right. What kind of mic is that? Is that one of the new Sure guys? Yeah, this was a, such a nice space saver. I have a very small desk here. It's almost Trump-sized. <laughs> you remember that little desk? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. I, I enjoyed watching your, your series, 
and uh, jotted some thoughts too. It's on Vice TV, right? Most people watching it online, I assume, right? Yeah, so there's three episodes total. There's one that's like kind of publicly available on YouTube and then two that you can watch on Vice, or two and three that you can watch on Vice TV or via their app. Episode one is a gift slash teaser. If you like what you saw, watch the rest. If you want to go deeper down the rabbit hole to know like really the who and the why. I think that term rabbit hole might be used. I didn't do a, a count, but that term comes up a lot because when you're going after a story like this, right? It is, that's what it is, right? It's a hundred percent like that. And so much of the terminology has been built around like pop culture references from the matrix or Alice in Wonderland, yeah. you know, the, the, the history of film that they pull from is really robust, you know? And I think that's like, what's fun coming at it from a filmmaker is you recognize all of these like pop culture references from films like The Last of the Mohicans or The Matrix or all of these things. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that too, because last night or the night before I watched The Glitch of the Matrix. Have you had it? I don't want to, we're going to talk about QAnon. There's Lee. There's Lee. Lee, are you going to hang out on on here and just, we got here a little early, hit the ground running. No worries. I'll just listen. All good. All right, I'm going to hide you, but um, sorry. No offense. No, no, don't be silly. Um, there we go. Um, we're going to talk about QAnon, the search for Q, which is what we started talking about. But I, I it, but what you just brought up was it's too, uh, uh, it's right on the nose because um, I just watched this documentary by uh, Rodney Asher. I don't know. Do you know who I'm talking about? I heard the title. I haven't got to watch it yet. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. He's the one that did that movie about Kubrick and The Shining and all the messages, the messaging and symbology and the uh, symbolism. There you go. That's (laughs) it. Yeah. (laughs) That exists in the, uh, in that film. So it's, but this is, it's really kind of disturbing. Um, But it's the, it's all about exactly what you said. It's like, like it's, it's also deals with conspiracy, you know, people that are sort of buy into this consp- idea, this, this, and it's really, you know, at the end of the day, what I take away from your three-part docuseries, which also I feel is like how you, without a spoiler, but I kind of feel like that's at the end of the day, it's like, well, why are people seeking this out, regardless of who Q is, regardless of you know, who's behind the curtain pulling the levers. It's almost, almost beside the point to get to the next place. We do need to know why all these millions of people are desperately grabbing onto this, uh, this thing. I think exactly. Couldn't have said it better myself where it really, for me, what the opportunity was in telling this story and what nobody really seemed to be doing was taking that perspective of not trying to have like an intermediary say what the followers believe, like an Anderson Cooper on the news explain to you what the followers believe, but just talking to a follower in like a genuine conversational way about what drew them to QAnon, right? The first interview we do is someone who is a former Bernie supporter who then, you know, went Trump after 16. And I thought, you know, nobody was exploring that narrative in any kind of in any meaningful way that didn't seem kind of intent on ridicule or making fun of the followers. And 
for me, like, I think that's a natural response as a society when we're confronted with beliefs that are so outrageous, right? Like, we want to laugh them off or like act like if we kind of make a few jokes dismiss uh, them in a way yeah yeah that that it's going to go away but we saw with QAnon over the course of two years that it only grew more and more um popular over those years and those kind of tactics of ridicule and dismissing were only being used against kind of the media and the government to attract more and more people and prey on that sense of disenfranchisement that we kind of get at. So just so people understand, again, the name of the docuseries is called QAnon, the search for Q, and that the structure of the three-part series is, you know, yours and your co-host, Marley Clements, your, your partnership in trying to figure out who Q is and the origins thereof and who's really, you know, yeah. Getting to the bigger story is 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 really what's going on. Sorry, to build yeah. on that point, I think like for us again, like not being journalists is like a very controversial idea. But I think like for your audience as filmmakers, really understanding that our perspective was to have a journey and an experience, right? Like which I think is very much like, like our avatar in a way, things. like avatars. No, more like just you know. Um, what the the impetus of the documentary was really again like what is it like to investigate these questions as much as it was getting to the bottom of you know who is QAnon and why does it exist but like really play to that sense of like us as average you know people not with a journalism degree not like being you know reporters but just humans trying to understand something and I think that's a really important distinction. Uh, what makes our documentary unique in that sense was where we weren't trying to really be prescriptive in what the audience should take away um, from these conversations, but rather, again, just like an impartial, uh, non-prescriptive way of, you know, talking to QAnon believers. Yeah, and you mentioned before, you know, some are, are kind of loony uh, you know, that's our, our image of some of these people. And yet, you know, many of these people are very reasonable, rational sounding. And and some of the ones that kind of appear that way are sometimes the looniest, you know, or the most uh, complicated. And also something I just didn't know was that the members of this group have really gone beyond party lines, right? Yes, I think that's a really important development that was happening a lot more uh, during the pandemic when things like hashtag save our children uh, started to come to the forefront or have like this viral moment. And that drew a lot of people who were like part of the anti-vax community or maybe the new age community to join, whether they knew it or not, kind of that QAnon family tree of conspiratorial thinking that during the pandemic also uh, spread out to include kind of COVID denial. Um, and QAnon very early, you know, in March, uh, in February, March, was putting out documentaries uh, or promoting documentaries like Plandemic and Out of Shadows and Fall of Cabal, which invited a whole new audience uh, that were from sometimes traditionally left-wing or far left-wing circles to join the, the Q train. I mean, there's quite a leap from 
keep being skeptical about the va- vaccine, which is a brand new, unproven technology, to believing that Barack Obama drank baby blood. Was it your sense, you, you're, you guys, was it your sense that, that this was principally fear-driven? I think it's um, prejudice-driven. I think that um, I, I see QAnon as kind of like this information highway, and there are various on-ramps to get into QAnon, whether you know QAnon is behind that on-ramp or not, right? And that yeah. might be, you know, um, a bias towards uh, anti-abortion that leads you to like a, um, you know, Save Our Children march, which then leads you to QAnon, right? It might be a more racially driven prejudice that leads you to believe that Michelle Obama is a man or be susceptible to, to believing that because it kind of confirms a deeply held suspicion or belief that we have. Or a more, you know, recent example that, you know, there's a, a elite group of people who are controlling society and culture and therefore they are, you know, having these ceremonies and meetings where they're planning the world's, you know, events. Yeah, and, right. and so I think, yeah. you know, it, it is understanding that level of nuance that's really hard to get across, you know, in today's media environment that I don't think most people who kind of like ended up being Q's most passionate followers knew in the beginning that they were going to be following QAnon or be part of this kind of larger movement. I think QAnon was able to target and message different communities in a way that, okay. you know, pl- that played on those prejudices and those beliefs. Well, right. Yeah. And the leader of the country was doing that as well, right? So it was like a perfect storm in the sense that you had, uh, on one hand, this pandemic, and then you also had uh, an incredible divide in the country at this particular moment, which is fueling a lot of emotion. And then you have like a Trump who is saying, oh, it's perfectly okay. Embrace who you are and your prejudices. And you know, it's perfectly okay to be that way. It's perfectly, you know, don't let people make you feel that you shouldn't be that way. Right. And it was exactly, it's, I think that kind of like um, disabandonment or disconnection with like our our humanity, right? Um, And having that conspirator in chief to validate these kind of like worst impulses um, that made QAnon kind of uniquely positioned to become so much bigger than anything that America has ever seen before uh, in terms of like a movement of people that were all radicalized online, you know? And these were things that we saw happening in the Middle East. There were things we saw happening in South America, but only by having kind of Trump's presence in the White House did America then also become susceptible to that same playbook. And like most things, having a sense of community is just feels good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But but it's weird because you can't you just don't get a sense of like, who's organizing? Did you feel like you got a sense of that by those? I, I, I could add in the structure of these three episodes that you you do the pyramid approach in the sense that you start talking to people that seem to be the most involved and visible and mentioned like you know you have this kind of almost filtering process where the certain names keep coming up right so you find them and you talk to them uh to, to kind of figure out who's at the very top of this thing exactly we wanted to kind of like move up the ladder 
um, of influence as it kind of related to the QAnon community. Um, and I think you kind of like, um, and it was really organic too, like what you saw of us putting together, you know, what we were seeing and hearing on the ground from Q followers and people who are um, anti-Q uh, looking and asking questions. And I think where we land in the end is is really worth considering, um, you know, because these what we were able to find and talk to is like there are actual former members of the intelligence community, actual former members of the military who are subsumed in this. Now, there's a I mean, and, and ranking. Yes. Yeah. And current members. And I think there's so many questions still about like the way that January 6th was organized that have that have to do with, you know, members, uh, high ranking members in this community. And I think like, there's still a question about when certain, you know, members of the military community got involved, but there is no doubt that after a certain point, their support was public and they were actively co-opting the community towards, you know, either their personal or ideological interests. And um, it's, it, yeah. It's complicated to talk about because it lends a level of credibility that the Anons have felt for years. But in our effort to kind of discredit and ridicule, nobody's at, nobody thought to ask those questions in a serious way and bring those up. And so that for me was the end of saying like, hey guys, like, yeah, not a journalist, you know, but it's worth investigating. And the New York Times did an um, article yesterday. Yeah, I read it. Deeper, uh, deeper into these questions. So we were just, again, like on that front, proud to be um, moving forward the conversation beyond ridicule and more into like, what are we going to do about this? Right. You got to get there. It's, it's, again, it's, there's an interesting dichotomy in, the, in this project where you have uh, this citizen journalism approach and like a mystery to be solved and that's kind of the structure and then you have this which is really a MacGuffin right as Hitchcock would have called it in other words it's really beside the point what we're getting at is exactly what we were talking about which is to is to not point fingers so much or lay blame so much as to figure out you know what are we going to do you know and um what you you've mentioned a few times that you're not journalist uh you're filmmaker Correct. Correct. That's your background. And what is Marley's? And I mean, also, this is a second, I guess, question, maybe. But oh, well, the first one being, how did you guys get together and end up making this project? And, and then the other thing is, you were still perceived, I assume, because you had a crew. There was a guy at one point who says, "You're going to end up in a meme tomorrow when you're talking to the the young blonde woman who is uh, like a yeah. spokesperson," and and. So, like, you were perceived as being journalists by some, right, percentage of the people that you taught, you approached, I assume. Yeah, I think it's important to, like, understand and respect what, who, you know, what journalists are, like, first and foremost, right? Like, there's a process in which journalists follow that earns them the title of being a journalist and, like, a, you know, an education. And I have the education of being a filmmaker and a storyteller right? Like to get to the heart of a matter in a way that I think, you know, journalists have a different set of tools to do. Uh, and us as storytellers, us as filmmakers, we're really driving at the idea of like having more questions than answers, 
right? And being comfortable with that. Uh, and, and that kind of process of like finding and discovering truth. Um, and so um, I think, you know, Marley has a background of being involved in kind of politics and okay. campaigns in politics. Um, and my background was always in filmmaking. And so I think that was where we were able to kind of meet in the middle and recognize that both of our respective fields are kind of changing as a result of the political landscape. Um, and I think like, you know, we were both driven by different um, curiosities, you know, but ultimately I think that we represent so much of like, um, you know, different perspectives in that I see every day, you know, that people have. So I really liked that partnership that we were able to kind of decompress and bring our, our shared knowledge to, to every question we were looking at. Journalism is in a, or maybe, you know, what people perceive as being journalism is, is a, uh, it's a little tricky right now. It's a little confusing because uh, people, as we know, get their, a lot of their information from social media, uh, some of the highest rated news programming, as we call it, is actually our opinion shows by entertainers, right, on and MSNBC or CNN, that kind of thing, Fox. So it, it, it's very interesting a topic, as a, you know, to, to kind of explore. It was something that I kept noticing over and over again as we would film is people being like, oh, these guys are reporters, oh, the, you know, um, yeah. these guys. And I was just, it was, it was interesting to me because I, I've always, we always represent it's like, Hey, I'm the filmmaker. Um, that has a specific meaning to me. Um, but I kind of see how there's this merger now of like journalism and documentary. Um, and sure. I think like that was something that in this process, I wasn't, I don't think I, I anticipated or I expected, but I think as filmmakers, you know, as people who are, who are listening um, can kind of like, start to see is noticing what those differences are right like why our show was successful in a way that like I think uh, folks who are looking at it from a journalistic perspective weren't able to tackle um, and that's why documentary is so important today because it's not about you know where with journalism that practice goes through you know many rounds of fact checking and making sure that like everybody is saying the right things whereas documentary we can make space for people to say the wrong things and understand that and think about that um and i think that is a really important art form today for people to continue doing is just you know go out there and have an experience as a filmmaker, go out there seeking to understand something and, um, you know, not worrying, I guess, so much about like, is, um, is everybody going to be okay with like what I might find or the conversations I have? Because like, we must reinstill like the humanity in, in documentary or filmmaking and, and those kind of things and nuance to that. Um, rather than telling people like, this is what you need to believe, right? Like, let us kind of prescribe to you um, how you should feel about any certain thing. That's why I love documentaries. Yeah, well, you tell a good story in this one. Uh, and we're, as, as Vice Media is a producer, do they have a hand in it? Uh, how branded do they want you guys or how present are they there? And yeah, hands on. Well, you know, yeah, we got, 
we were really blessed uh, to work with Danny Kabai at Vice Studios mm -hmm. as one of our early partners in helping us shape this. And, you know, the studios uh, team has come out with just, I want to say, like some of my favorite documentaries in the last few years. Um, I think, you know, Vice has a tone and approach that uh, as, you know, a millennial, an average millennial, I always grew up appreciating and because it kind of leaned into exactly what we're I was just mentioning where it's this kind of accessible form of documentary where there's nobody like holier than thou like explaining it to you but rather like people like me or someone else just going out there and asking questions um so vice really kind of created the sandbox um that allowed us to kind of explore those questions in a way that I don't think a lot of traditional networks would let us. So that was, I think, what that relationship was like, was understanding at the outset that this was something that we would need to continue um, having a conversation about, like, what is the line, right, that we're willing to, to go to where we still feel like we're communicating what is important about this ideology, not being prescriptive, um, but also not being irresponsible. Um, and trying our best to stick to the things that manifested themselves in some kind of offline um, harm or organization or, <laughs> you know, ideology. Yeah. We're talking to Bayan Junam. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who is a uh, director. You're sole director, right? Even though Marley's co-hosting. Yeah. I would say co-creator. Co-creator. Yeah. Okay, so you are the co-creator of QAnon, the search for Q, currently available, currently available to watch on Vice TV. And again, it's um, it's such a uh, timely, you must have, this must have come together relatively quickly, probably scary, but also liberating experience. Yeah. First day of production was August 10th. Um, where we oh. went to Georgia for Marjorie Taylor Greene's election, yeah, right. a special election, actually. It didn't make it into the final cut, but we were there when yeah. Marjorie was elected. Um, so top to bottom, like, yeah, six months um, to make those three hours, which is super fast, not to mention during uh, the pandemic, which made everything a little harder. Um, but you know, I, I think that we recognize the importance of putting it out uh, quickly, you know, needing to have it come out at a time where people were still trying to decompress and understand what's happened the last few years. Yeah. Do you think it might recruit anybody? <laughs> I don't think so, but you never know. I don't, I don't think so. I trust the audience. We've had yeah, a lot, we had a lot of conversations about that internally, you know, um, what, again, what is that line, right? Between like not wanting, you know, not wanting to create a platform for this ideology, but rather right. be able to hear what it really is from the people who believe it. Um, and so I think we, again, I would, when I look at the range of content out there, I think we do the best job at it because we allow Anons to speak for themselves. Um, we maintain a certain level of civility throughout, which is something that we wanted to demonstrate, you know, um, and then we we made sure to debunk the things that have led to offline harm, right? Uh, and and some of those beliefs uh, that we disagreed with were more apparent on our face than others. Um, but sure, I think until we actually confront the beliefs, 
um, we're never going to move on. We're never going to have the tools to address them until we can really see them. Last question. Have any of your subjects in this docuseries gotten back to you having seen it and given you any feedback? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an ongoing conversation that I've had with uh, a number of people in the doc. There's, do, they feel um, they're, do they feel they're fairly treated or, or represented? Some yes, and some not as much. You know, I think that it's typical, I think, in a documentary that isn't a puff piece, that people might not feel as, like, proud of things that they've said, you know, while the camera was rolling. Um, but I think, again, like, one of the things I always point back to is when you look at the landscape of stuff that has been made, I still think we did the most fair job of handling these conversations and not taking kind of cheap shots at people or like trying to create a situation where like there's a winner and a loser in a conversation. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think everybody felt at least from the, you know, from a human to human level that we during that conversation respected them were open-minded and like you know were interested in having a conversation and i think after watching it within the context of what happened on january 6th uh it was a very different tone uh after that point so i think that um nobody could have foreseen that um i mean we did but most people you know we had a camera out there but i think most people didn't see it coming to that point and when we were talking to people, it was still very much a conversation about like, is this dangerous? Is this not dangerous? Um, I think that the tone around that changed a lot after the sixth. Yeah. And a lot of people were distancing. A lot of people have been distancing themselves since. I bet that would make sense. Uh, yeah. People are getting arrested also, you know, there, maybe there's a sense of protection, you know, to protect I you know. I would say that people, you know, on the positive side, through the conversations I've been able to have on camera and off camera, I think people were able to see a little bit more clearly what happened, right? Like this was, this was gamification, right? This created investment on a little by little basis, on a breadcrumb by breadcrumb basis that people were subsumed in, right? Like it created a filter over reality that people were really invested in. and. At, you know, I think we're only, you know, GameStop did that again, in a way, um, it was able to co-opt that same enthusiasm from anonymous message boards into real world effects that, um, you know, had varying degrees of, caused various degrees of instability. Right. Uh, and so I think we should all look at that and not think like, oh, those people over there fell for it, but these things can happen to you. They could happen to me. It just is a matter of finding the right prejudice to. And right. And it happened with the election. Right. Like you could just deny that what happened happened just enough. And there must be a sense of empowerment being able to successfully do that. Bayan Junan. Uh, I, I try to really make an effort to get it right too. I was, I should have done a little I bit more. I appreciate that, Adam. I, I do. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Very nice of you. Nice to talk to you. And, you know, hopefully we'll we'll be able to do this again sometime. I, I look forward to it. Yeah, big fan of your show. So thank you for having oh, me. Well, thank you. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. Stay safe and. Will do. You too. All right. Take care. 
Bye-bye. Take care, everybody. Uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Right now, today, Friday, is the first day of Slam Dance. If you go to the Filmmax Radio channel, there is a conversation with one of the founders, uh, Dan Mervish. We have also, I think, one or two other filmmakers who are already on there with talking about their films. And we, over the next uh, few days, there will be more on the Filmmax Radio YouTube channel with uh, filmmakers from... Slam Dance 2021, and so which is going on right now. And by the way, ten dollars you can watch the entire slate for ten dollars. You get a pass, and you can watch anything or everything right at home, uh, and attend Slam Dance. So I, I urge you to do it, and, and you'll be supporting independent film and this great festival. Uh, so, and I had a great conversation with the songwriter, musician extraordinaire Joy Askew, who I'm very excited to announce will be on this show. So I, I'm just very thrilled to uh, invite musicians on as well. Uh, thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Until next time, Adam Chartoff signing off.